0: This is God's holy word in verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Let's pray for God's help. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you that we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with us now. And that you have given your children the Spirit. That the Spirit, it is his work to teach us, to illuminate our minds, to help us to understand your word. As he has not only helped the apostles to write it, to write your words without error, but also helps us to understand it thousands of years later. So we pray, uh, Lord Jesus, the one who sends the Spirit, we pray that you would give us your Spirit now, that the Spirit might glorify you, that we might love our God more, our God as Father, Son, and Spirit. We ask for these things uh, in uh, the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, here in verse 14, we have Paul's silver bullet. Paul's silver bullet to cure all your ills, all the ills in your life and in a church's life. If you want the answer for how to have a great life and a perfect church, it's here in verse 14. Communion with the triune God, Father, Son, And Spirit. If you can manage to have perfect communion with Father, Son, and Spirit, then all things will be smooth in your life. Not that externally everything would go well, but that you would know how to deal with all of the problems on the outside that come up in your life because you have this perfect communion. Well, the problem, of course, is sin, and so because all of us are sinners, we don't have perfect communion with the triune God, and so uh, perfect communion is not achievable for us in this life, but it is what we should strive for, more and more and more communion with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, to quote Herman Bavinck for a second time this uh, today, he says, In the confession of the Trinity, we hear the heartbeat of the Christian religion. Every error results from or upon deeper reflection is traceable to departure in the doctrine of the Trinity. So every error can ultimately be traced back to an error in understanding the Trinity. The Trinity is the heartbeat of the Christian religion, and so without a heart, you're dead. If we do not worship God as Father, Son, and Spirit, we're not Christians. Our church would not be a Christian church unless we gave all praise to the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But I think we can also say that all of our errors and behavior can be traced back to departing from the trinity all of our errors all of our sin is because at the end of the day we don't really live out the knowledge of the grace of the lord jesus christ and the love of god and the fellowship of the holy spirit and this is why paul ends his letter with these words in verse 14 We've seen in Corinth how there were all kinds of problems. And and really, you can trace back all of the problems in Corinth to the lack of these things. They are not gracious people. There is all kinds of rivalry and dissension among them. So what is Paul's prayer and benediction, blessing that he desires to leave with them? It is that they would know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The more they understand and live in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the more gracious they will be to each other as a church. They are not a loving people. They love themselves. They are prideful. They are boastful people. So what do they need? They need to know the love of God in a deeper way. And so Paul prays and he blesses them with this blessing that they might know the love of God because then that will help them to love one another. And they have this problem of broken fellowship in the church. They are a divided church. And so what does Paul want for them? He wants for them to have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So do you see how Paul's Final benediction, his prayer is really the solution to address all of the problems in Corinth. This is what will help us as a church. This is what will help you in your Christian life that you would know the grace of Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Our horizontal problems among one another and with those that we know, are ultimately vertical problems. They are because we lack an understanding and a relationship and a communion with God in the way that we should. So we're going to look more closely here at verse 14. The first overall point that I want to make from this verse is that our experience of the Christian life is Trinitarian. And then we're going to look at each aspect of uh, the persons of the Trinity. But first, uh, just overall, with Paul mentioning here the Trinity, he's teaching us that the Christian life is Trinitarian. Paul is not giving us here exactly a doctrine of the Trinity. Notice he never says there is one God in three persons and all three persons are equally God. What Paul is doing, though, is he is assuming the truth of the Trinity, assuming that we know the doctrine, but he's realizing, he knows that this is our experience of God. Our experience of God is Trinitarian. When you are saved, you are saved by a work, not just of a God in general, but by the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, 1 Peter 1, verse 2 says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. So Father, Son, Spirit are all involved in your salvation. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 6 also says that in the fullness of time, God, the Father, sent forth his Son so that we might receive adoption as sons. And in verse 6, he says, Having received adoption as sons, you now receive the Spirit of his Son that you might cry out, Abba, Father. So God, the Father, sends his Son so that you who are a slave can become a son. And when you become a son, you receive the Spirit of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Christ. Your salvation is all a work of the Trinity. And then your life as a Christian continues to be a relationship with God three in one. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says that anytime you come to God, anytime you pray, he says all of your access to the Father is through Christ by the Spirit that is the christian life to come to the father through christ by the spirit not just in salvation but day by day every time you pray john writes in 1 john chapter 1 verse 3 indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son the christian life is that you would have fellowship with the father and the son And although John doesn't mention it, Paul says here that this is a fellowship given by the Spirit. And so if the beginning of your salvation is the work of the triune God, if the continuing of the Christian life is the work of experiencing the Trinity, then it makes sense why Jesus commands us to be baptized. He doesn't say to be baptized in the name of God he says, be baptized in the one name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are marked out upon your baptism as someone who is baptized into the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. And the rest of your life, you're living that out. How you belong to the Father, the Son, and the in the Spirit. So your Christian life is communion with the God who is three in one. And in this verse, especially, verse 14, Paul describes different aspects of how you can have communion with each person of the Trinity. There's one God, all of The persons in the Godhead, they they all possess these three things. They're all full of grace. They're all full of love. But it is particularly or especially through each one of these persons of the Trinity that you experience a unique aspect of who God is. With Christ, you are to have communion, especially with him in his grace. With the Father, you are to have communion, especially with him in his love. And with the Holy Spirit, you are to especially know him as the one who brings you fellowship. So that's what we're going to look at for the rest of our time. First, Paul mentions the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first question you should ask is, Why doesn't he mention the Father first? Why does he mention Christ first? Isn't in the order of the Trinity, don't we often speak of Father, Son, and Spirit? Not Son, Father, Spirit. Why does Paul put to the front for emphasizing Jesus Christ and his grace Well, even though it is true that in the order of the Trinity that we we often talk about, it is the Father who is first, Uh, Paul wants to emphasize Jesus Christ. And that makes sense because the triune God himself desires that glory would go to Jesus Christ. Uh, When it talks about the Spirit, Jesus says in John 16, verse 14, he says, He will glorify me. The, the role of the Spirit is to shine the spotlight on Jesus Christ, and so the Spirit would prefer that Christ would be mentioned first. Jesus says in John 3:35, that the Father has given all things into His hands. And so Paul will write in Colossians chapter 3 verse 11, "Christ is all." And in all, Christ is all. The glory, of course, goes to the Father and the Spirit and the whole triune God. But in particular, the Father desires for Christ to be glorified, and the Spirit desires for the spotlight to be shined on Christ. Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 18, that Christ is the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. So it makes sense that here in verse 14, he would be preeminent. He would be mentioned first. So Paul calls him here in verse 14, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, meaning he is God, Yahweh from the Old Testament. Jesus is his name as a man. The one who came to this earth to save us from our sins is the meaning of the name Jesus. It refers to him as Savior and Christ, his title as Messiah. That is what Christ means. It means he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. So he is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that I think in our day we often just refer to him as Jesus. We like to call him Jesus There's nothing wrong with that, but it is interesting. I did a quick search in the New Testament on the Internet. Um, You can just search the name Jesus and look at all the uses in the New Testament. Hebrews does use the name Jesus a lot just by itself. But outside of Hebrews and the Gospels, which obviously are writing about Jesus on the earth, um, outside of Hebrews, almost everywhere, almost all the time, He is not referred to as just Jesus, but Jesus Christ, or the Lord Jesus Christ, or some variation, not simply Jesus. And it makes sense. Titles are important. Uh, You don't call the president Joe, you call him the president. You don't call your father Tim or Tom. You call him dad, you call him father, you call your mother mother or mom because titles matter, the way you talk about people matters. And so, even though I don't, I'm not going to say it's wrong to just call him Jesus, I think it does matter that Paul calls him the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a way to respect his name, to reverence him, To acknowledge who he is. He's not just a man. As glorious as that is. That the son of God is man. But he is our Lord. And he is the Christ. So what does Paul say about the Lord Jesus Christ? He says, may the grace of Christ be with you all. We are to know the grace of Christ. Now, the Bible uh, does obviously talk about the grace of God in general, the grace of the Father, but especially talks about the grace that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1 is a great example of this, where, where uh, John says that the word became flesh, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten for, from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law came through Moses. Grace came through Jesus Christ. You are to know Christ and to look at Christ and to worship Christ and have your attention drawn to the fact that in Christ, grace upon grace upon grace is extended to sinners. Jesus describes himself as the fountain of living water. He is the, the living water, he says in John 4 and then John seven thirty seven. Out of his heart, out of the heart of Christ come fountains of living water. It is the fountain of grace. The more and more deeply you drink of Jesus Christ and his grace and come to know his grace, the more you realize that not only is there no loss of water, he doesn't run out of water, but he's continuing to overflow and overflow with more and more grace. He doesn't stop giving grace to sinners. Psalm 45 verse 2 prophesying about him says that grace is poured out upon his lips giving us that image of the Messiah who is the anointed one and the oil is poured upon his head and runs down his face and runs down his beard and the oil runs over his face and the idea is that this oil is covering his whole body and what is that oil that the anointed one is anointed with? It is grace. Grace has been poured out upon him so that everything he does is gracious, a revelation of grace upon grace that comes From God. So, any sinner can come to Jesus Christ and find grace. We see it in the Gospels. A demon-possessed man comes to him. The prostitute comes to him. The tax collector. The Gentile. The Samaritan woman. The leper and the unclean woman. All of them come to Jesus and he does not cast them out. But they come to him and they find that he has grace upon grace. There is only one kind of person who does not receive the grace of Christ. And that is the self-righteous one. The person who thinks that he is good. Who doesn't recognize his sin. Because the self-righteous person sees no need for grace. And so he doesn't need Christ. And because he doesn't need Christ, he doesn't ever come to Christ. And so he never will receive the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you will come to Christ, if you will humble yourself, if you will acknowledge your sin, stop making excuses for sin, stop trying to hide your sin, Stop trying to cover up your sin. If you will simply come to him, you will know that he has grace upon grace for you. So as the song says, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Feel your need of him. You will come to him and find grace. So what is the grace of our Lord Jesus? Well, Paul already said in chapter 8, verse 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, For your sakes he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The grace of Jesus is that the Son of God assumed a human nature. He became poor by leaving the glories of heaven and coming to earth and assuming this human nature that would be weak and suffer. And then, of course, he becomes poor most of all by giving up his life on the cross. The one who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect man, the one who perfectly obeyed the law, gives up his life as a curse to bear the wrath of God in the place of sinners, and then to rise from the dead to give new life so that all who come to him can find their sins forgiven. May this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Second, Paul mentions here the love of God. The love of God. Now, when he uses the title God, notice he doesn't say God the Father. But we know he's talking about the Father because he's not talking about Christ, who he's just mentioned, and he's not talking about the Spirit, who he's about to mention. So clearly, he is referring to the Father. Many times in the New Testament, the title God, sometimes it can mean the whole triune God, but many times it just is referring to the Father. Like in the famous verse John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his Son. Well, clearly, that verse is referring to God, not generally, but as the Father. It was the Father who gave his Son. Son. And so, here he is just referred to as God, referring to the Father. Now, again, each person of the Trinity is loving and has the love of God. But what you are supposed to especially have a communion with your Father with is to receive his love, to experience, to know deeper. His love. 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. But it is especially the Father's love that you are supposed to experience. That's why he's called Father. Because especially what you are supposed to uh, receive from him is adoption. And to feel the blessings and privileges of being adopted as sons. And so there is again the famous verse of John three sixteen God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And there is Ephesians chapter one, verses three to five, which focuses us on the Father, when it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He, the Father, chose us in Him, in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, the Father, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. This is who you are supposed to know the Father as. In love, he predestined you through the Son. And then Romans 5.8, Even while we were still enemies, God shows his love for us in this way. Christ died for us. What was the motive? What was one of the causes of Christ dying for us? God, the Father, wanted to demonstrate his love to you in this way. Even while you were an enemy. So we are to know the love of the Father. Now, there are three senses, at least, in which uh, you can think about and understand the love of God. It's, it's a little confusing when you're reading all through the Bible and it speaks about the love of God. and what, what sense, what kind of love is this? There might be more, but there are at least three to think about. First of all, is God's general love. God has a general love for all of creation. He cares about the birds of the, the birds in the air and the lilies of the field and he clothes them and he cares for them. God cares for all people made in his image. Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of and the son of man that you care for him? God cares about every person because every person, every life is made in his image. We see when Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler, that the man who goes away is not saved. says that Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him in a general sense. God loves all people. But then, in a second sense, we have a special love of God. We can call this the electing love of God. God loves everyone in a general sense, but he has a special kind of love for his elect people. For his chosen people, he says to you, I will love you with an everlasting love. He says to his people, you are the apple of my eye. Not all those other people, but you are the apple of my eye. And so God foreknows who he will save. First Peter 1, verse 2 again, he saves according to his foreknowledge. And Romans 8, 29 says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those he predestined, those are the ones he calls and justifies. So your justification, your salvation, is preceded before it comes his predestination, which comes from his foreknowledge. And in the Bible, foreknowledge is not that he just knows about it in advance. It's really for love. Loving in advance. God says in Amos 3, verse 2 about Israel, You alone have I known of all the families of the earth. Okay? You read that and you say, you, you alone have I known? God, did you forget about the Philistines? Did you not know about the Philistines? That's not what God means. He doesn't mean, those are the only people I know about. He means, you, Israel, my people, you alone have I loved. In the Bible, that's one of the senses of the word "know" is to have an intimate relationship with someone. So he says, of all the families of the earth, Israel, I chose you and I have set my love upon you. And so when Peter says you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, it's because God in advance decided to love you. He had an electing love for his people. One of the best statements about this is in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8, when God says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but... It is because the Lord loves you. Israel says, God, why do you love us? I set my love upon you, he says, because I love you. Because I decided before I created the world that I would love you and not them. And Because I love you, that's why I love you. It wasn't because of anything about you. You were the fewest of all the peoples. I set my love upon you because I love you. And so this is what Jesus says to his people in Christ. Those who have received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, I love you because I set my love upon you from eternity past. A man named Gerhardus Voss says, Christian, how do you know that God's love for you will never end? It's because it never began. This is God's electing love. Well, the third sense that we can talk about God's love, I call it his redeeming love. His redeeming love. And what I mean by that is just that even if God loves his people in eternity past before the foundation of the world, there is a point in time where God justifies you and you experience and receive his love. Romans 5.8 is true. While we were yet enemies, God demonstrated his love for us by giving us his son. Yes, the elect, the true people of God are loved by him from eternity and yet in some sense, at the same time, we can say that before I was a believer, before you were a believer, as we walked on this earth, we truly were enemies of God. The wrath of God remains upon those who do not believe. Psalm 5 verse 5 says, you hate all evildoers. So if you do evil, there is a sense in which God hates you. He has a general love for all people. He has a special love for his elect. And yet as we walk on this earth rebelling against Him at these points in time in our lives before Christ, we know that we are enemies of God. And so, we need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that God has elected us before time does not excuse the necessity of every single person for believing in Jesus Christ to be saved. And if you do not put all of your trust in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins, the wrath of God will abide upon you. And so there is this great love that we experience when God saves us in Jesus Christ. He adopts us. We feel His love And then we learn, we are taught that that love never had a beginning. This is the love of the Father that Paul wants to be with you. Well, finally, we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The fellowship of the Spirit. The word fellowship means communion. Communion partnership and so we have a communion or a fellowship with the spirit again we can think about it in more than one way first of all you can think about it as fellowship with the person of the holy spirit himself we have a unique fellowship with the spirit and you don't exactly have with the son or with the father because it is the spirit who dwells within you the believer when I was a kid, at least maybe when you were a kid or you 're a kid now, you have this picture uh, because you hear this phrase, maybe not in this church, but you hear this phrase of accepting Jesus into your heart, receiving Christ into your heart or into your life, and so when I was a kid, I just had all, always had this image that there 's this little statue thing of Jesus, uh, probably also because I grew up in a Catholic country, and so there were statues of Jesus everywhere and uh, so I had this image. Well, I I need that little Jesus to be in my heart. How is Jesus going to come into my heart? I don't understand this. Well, That's not really biblical language. But how does it work? It's the Spirit. It's the Spirit who dwells in you. Romans 8 verse 11 says. Jesus is ascended into heaven at the Father's right hand. He's there in a physical body. He's not going to come into your heart in that sense, not physically. What happens is the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, who is united to Christ, then unites the believer to Jesus Christ. And then the Spirit dwells within you. So when Paul says... It's not I who live, but Christ lives in me. That is true. But technically, what he means is, the Spirit dwells in me and unites me to Jesus Christ. And so, it's only the person of the Spirit in this sense, of course, he is fully God, but in this sense, it's the person of the Spirit who we have this intimate fellowship with of dwelling within us. And so, the Spirit is called our comforter, in John 15 and 16. Jesus sends another comforter. That's how the Spirit comforts you. It's because He is within you, and He can bring comfort within. He can bring peace," Jesus says in John 14, "My peace I leave with you." And he says, He's going to send this Holy Spirit, the helper, to give us peace. The Spirit dwells within us. He helps us to pray. Romans 8.26 says that when we don't know how to pray for as we ought the spirit groans with uh, groanings too deep for words. Spirit takes your thoughts. He takes the words that you're trying to put together and babble out and you don't know how to pray as you ought. Spirit has this fellowship, this communion with you, and he knows what you're trying to say. He brings them to God. He intercedes for us. We know the fellowship of the Spirit when we try to fight against our sin. Romans 8 says that the one who raised Jesus from the dead is the one who is within us. He helps us and gives us power to overcome sin. The same power that he used to raise the body of Jesus out of the grave. And so you are to know this fellowship with the person of the Holy Spirit. Then the second, the other sense that Paul means here. The fellowship of the Spirit is also the fellowship that the Spirit gives to us, the Father and the Son. And this is what First John was talking about when he says our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. How does that happen? How does that work? It's because of the Spirit. Because the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, He brings us into that fellowship. In Ephesians chapter 3, when Paul prays for the Ephesians, he prays that their inner man would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit so that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. See? Christ dwells in your heart through the Spirit and so that they would have The ability to comprehend the height and depth and breadth of the love of Christ. So how do you comprehend the love of Christ for you? It's because the Spirit works in you and fills you with all the fullness of God so that you have strength to comprehend this great love. It's the work of the Spirit to draw you more and more into the love of Christ. Romans 5, verse 8 says that by the Spirit, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. The knowledge that you have, the experience that you have of the Father's love for you is only because the Spirit pours that out upon you. 1 John 4 verse 13 how do you know that you abide in him and he abides in you by the spirit he has given us the spirit gives you this assurance this knowledge that christ is your savior and that god the father really loves you how are you able to receive the grace of jesus titus 3 verse 6 says we are washed with the water of regeneration so that we are justified by his grace So you receive the grace of Christ because before that, the Holy Spirit comes and gives you a new heart. He causes you to be born again. So, remember what we talked about this morning? About the Father and the Son. And how from eternity past, the Father did nothing but pour out His love upon His Son Eternally begetting his son because he, he loves his son. And the son for eternity, all he is he's doing before the creation of the world. You realize all the father and son doing are, is, is loving each other. The father pouring out his son forever. And the son forever receiving the poured out love of the father. Augustine says this analogy is that the Spirit is that bond of love between the Father and the Son. That this intense, eternal love is how the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. And Paul says, may that fellowship be with you all. May you, be taken up to receive this kind of love of the Father's eternal love for His Son and the Son's eternal love for His Father. He wants you to know that, to have fellowship with the Father and the Son. So this is what Paul wants you to know do you have this relationship with god do you see that this is what the christian life is really all about children do you have this kind of relationship with god we want you not just to learn all the truths about god we want you not just to have good behavior we want those things for you but children, we want you to have a relationship with God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of the Father. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Do you have that? Have you experienced that? Christians, brothers and sisters. Is this your Christian life? Is this what you think about? Isn't this more important than who's in the White House and what your sports team did the other day and how much money is in your bank account? You see, this is is the cure. This is what we need more of. We need to experience the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of the Father and this fellowship of the Holy Spirit. May this be with us all. Let's pray. Our eternal God, you are blessed forever. We thank you you have come down to us who are we that you would care for us and especially that you would make us your people and you would set your love upon us and show us your grace and bring us into communion with you so we thank you We praise you for who you are. What can we render to you for all of your benefits to us? All that we can do is praise you more. Help us, Lord, to praise. Help us to have this communion with you, the triune God. And we pray these things to you, the Father, By the Spirit, through the Son, in His name.